so our scripture reading today uh, is actually going to come from Genesis chapter 2. But it might take us a little while to get there. Um, we've got... Uh, We've been doing this sermon series. This is just week two. We're going to do it all the way through the fall where we're looking at the new uh, vision statement of the church, which begins, uh, Creston Church is becoming an intentional community of disciples uh, living in Christ all together with our neighbors to follow Jesus in every part of life. That's how it begins. And today we're going to be focusing on that line, an intentional community of disciples. So if you were here last week, Uh, You were here for our annual Nijoni House Commissioning. We do lots of commissionings in September. Uh, We start with Nijoni, the annual Nijoni Commissioning and Potluck. Let's hear it for the curry chicken salad. Am I right? I thought that was a winner. For those of you who don't know what the Nijoni House is, it's a house of college students uh, two doors south who commit to live for at least one year in what's called intentional Christian community. They eat. They eat meals together, they do devotions together, they serve in the neighborhood together, they hang out together. It's great. And some of you know that our Najoni house is actually part of a larger program at Calvin University called Project Neighborhood. There are six houses all together in the program. Najoni was number four. But among the six houses, Najoni is unique in a number of ways. See, the first Project Neighborhood house, uh, Koinonia, they all have somewhat unusual names, uh, Koinonia started with a large donation to Calvin. The second and third houses were former pastor's homes, like parsonages where a church already owned the house, but the pastor didn't live there anymore. And they just needed, to, to, they needed something to do with the house. But Nijoni, Nijoni was the first and only house that a church went out and actually bought and fixed up just for this use. And not only did we buy it, I love pointing this out. We bought it in 2007, which has to be like the worst time in the last 20 years to buy a house. It was like six months later, and the house was worth like less than half of what we paid for it. Not only that, but Creston is by far the smallest church to support one of these houses. In fact, even while we were considering buying it, some of us weren't sure how much longer Creston could really pay its pastor to keep the lights on. Which means, buying this house and supporting this program was one of the most financially reckless things this church has ever done. It's also one of the main reasons I wanted to come here 10 years ago. You see, launching an intentional Christian community and doing it in such a risky way said something to me about the heart of this church. That at this church... We didn't just value the experience of worshiping together on Sundays, but we valued the experience of living together well every day of the week. And this mattered to me because for Lauren and me, many of the most formative faith experiences of our lives took place in communities a lot like Nijoni in the years right after college. So for several years, we each lived in separate homes with groups of other Christians where we prayed together and worshiped together and ate together, and we got deeply into each other's lives. Because, of course, when you just see other Christians once a week for a couple of hours on Sundays, it's really quite easy to keep things superficial. 
But it's harder to stay superficial in an all-day, everyday community, especially one that is intentional about the time that people put in and the commitment that they make. Living with other Christians intentionally became, for Lauren and me, really, I would say, the primary context for our faith to grow in those years. As much or anything, as much or maybe more than anything, I think that's how we became who we are. In fact, it shaped me so much that in my interview with this church 10 years ago, I shared a dream that this church would be a kind of community of communities. That we would be like a gathering place for all these smaller groups of Christians in the neighborhood like Najoni and like the houses that Lauren and I lived in, all of us together trying to live well here. But it's important to say, I think, I didn't just want this dream because community had been like important to me. I wanted it, and I still want it, because community like this, I believe, is the answer to one of our society's most aching needs. You probably saw this in the news. This was like last winter. The United Kingdom appointed a government minister for loneliness. There's a government office in London dedicated to addressing the epidemic of loneliness and its consequences across the UK. That's incredible. Or a pastor I followed during my sabbatical put me on to this book by Sherry Turkle. I think she's like a Harvard sociologist. It's called Alone Together. Uh, Why we expect more from technology and less from each other. And she says this about our like digital age. She says, uh, We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we're tethered to each other. And she illustrates this by talking about the rise of texting, which is something I've been thinking about for for a few years. You see, I noticed that in the last couple of years um, that basically no one under 40, even my wife, ever listens to the voice messages I leave on their phones. Right? And no one under 40 ever leaves a voice message on my phone. In fact, no one under 40 basically ever calls me at all. What's everyone doing instead? They're texting. This is what Turkle says about texting. She calls it the Goldilocks of uh, our present age's communication. She says, texting offers just the right amount of access, just the right amount of control. Texting puts people not too close, not too far away, but at just the right distance. We take comfort in being in touch with a lot of people, that we can also keep at bay. You see what she's saying. We text because we need to connect, but we don't want it to get messy. So we don't call because a phone call creates the possibility that things could go off script. That we'll call someone and they will detect that we're in a bad mood and they will ask, hey, what's up? be terrible, right? Or we'll call someone and they'll say, I'm so glad you called. I really needed someone to talk. 
What could be worse than that? Right? In other words, when you call, there's a risk that a real relationship might happen. That like a real community moment might happen. And the good news is that texting mostly eliminates that risk. Texting allows us to be alone together. We're connected, but we're not in community. Right? It's 300 friends on Facebook and nobody to hang out with on Friday. We are both more connected and more lonely than ever before. Which finally brings us to our passage today, Genesis chapter 2. So this is the very beginning of the Bible, right? Genesis 1 and 2, you guys know this drill. We've covered it in the last year. Uh, they are two different accounts of God creating the world. But across these accounts, there's been this refrain. It's good. It's good. So the land is good. The light is good. The birds are good. The fish are good. And then Adam, the human, made in God's image. Very good. Now turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's on page 3. The Lord God said, It is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's good. It's good. Suddenly it's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Notice, by the way, this is before the fall into sin. That happens in chapter 3. Which means, even if we lived in a world without sin, as Adam did, we'd still need each other. That's a, something to think about. And so God creates a helper suitable to Adam. This is verse 22. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And ever since that day, God has worked through not just individuals, he's worked through communities. So God called Abram and his family, right? God formed that family into tribes. God took those tribes and united them into a nation. God gave that nation all kinds of rituals and rules to bring people together on a regular basis. And to care for the very people who are most likely to be neglected in groups like this. Continues right into the New Testament. So Pastor Dave Lomas, pastor in San Francisco, he pointed out something I had never noticed before. Uh, so in Christian circles, a lot of times you hear about the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Personal relationship with Jesus. A lot of you have heard that before. Right? The most important thing is that each person get saved. But turn to Acts chapter 2. So this is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2. This is right after Jesus went up to heaven in his body, and then the chapter starts with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Holy Spirit coming in power upon the disciples, a bunch of other people. Most of chapter 2 is this long sermon. But in verse 37 it says, a big group of people were cut to the heart by the message they heard. And about 3,000 became Christians. Except this is the key. Acts doesn't say about 3,000 became Christians. It doesn't even say about 3,000 were saved. It says in verse 41, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's an interesting way to put it. 
This is the first mass conversion in the history of the church. They were added to their number. Whose number? It's the number of people in the church. They're added to the church. 3,000 people join the church. That's what Acts wants you to know. That's what happens when you're cut to the heart by the message of Jesus. You're added to the church. God's plan, even when he convicts us personally and cuts us personally to the heart, is never just to save our souls. It is to get us into a Christian community. It's to get us into the church. Some of you know the Christian community in Acts chapter 2 is sweet. Like, when I talked about my dream of the community of communities, I was thinking of this passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sounds amazing, right? That's Acts 2. It's this beautiful, selfless community. Except you all know what happens next, right? It's basically downhill the whole way. You know what basically the entire rest of the New Testament is? It's letters from pastors talking about what to do when your community of Jesus followers gets super messed up and dysfunctional. I mean, let's be straight. That's the problem, isn't it? Community sounds like an awesome idea. I mean, who would argue with Acts 2? That sounds awesome. Who wouldn't want all this selfless sharing and sacrificial giving? It's incredible. The ideal of community is amazing. But there's a reason we text. Right? Because real community, real relationships, I mean, they might be what we need, they might be great, but they are also really messy. Right? They're complicated, they get weird. It's like, sure, there's a big payoff, but there are costs too. I think I've shared with you before this line from Eugene Peterson. He's this pastor and theologian. I, I love this. You, you might be sick of it by, by now. But he says, uh, when we come to church, we expect this, this disciplined army of committed men and women who will courageously lay siege to the worldly powers. He says, instead, we find people who are mostly worried about getting crabgrass out of their lawns. Right? Right? To be in an intentional community, a real one, right? Not just the one that exists in your mind, not just a dream you talk about in an interview, but a real one. To be in a real intentional community for any length of time is to deal with a lot of disappointment. This is a fact that pastors try to cover up sometimes, right? So someone comes to your church complaining about their last church. It's a classic conversation for pastors, right? And you listen as they tell you about like, uh, how their last church was full of all these annoying people and like, hypocrites and they gossip. Like, a bunch of people were fighting. And then they say something like, we're glad you guys at Creston are different. You know, here at Creston, you guys are like a family. And I want to be like, uh, we're like a family more than you know. 
Like, I'm not sure what your family's like, but like hypocrites and gossips and annoying and conflicted, like it's about everybody in my family, right? Right, to be in, in a real intentional community for any length of time is to deal with a lot of disappointment. You know, I think one of the temptations for us and it's, it's probably easier now than ever before, right? We live in this mobile, really transient society. I think one of our temptations is to try to curate our church community, right? There's a lot of options in Grand Rapids, right? You go look for a church with people who are like you, right? People who share your politics, right? That's an important one these days, right? People who share your politics and your values and your temperament, who share your taste in music and your sense of humor, and the idea is, right, you keep looking until you have cut out the kinds of people who annoy you or offend you or upset you, right? And you surround yourself only with people who are interesting and curious and whose kids are well-behaved, right? You essentially try to do with your church what you do with your Instagram, right? You, you, you try to establish it so that you control who's in your feed, And I want to be in that small group with those people, but, but not that small group, because that woman talks too much, and that guy never shuts up about politics. Right? We try to curate our community. And actually, if you're trying to curate your community, I have some good news that might surprise you. Jesus did this too. So some of you know he actually had a lot of disciples who followed him around, probably hundreds. Uh, but there were just those 12, right, who were the closest. This was kind of his small group. And each and every one of those 12, Jesus handpicked. Which means of all the people in Galilee, that's where he found these 12, this region, he chose this guy named Matthew, and he chose this guy named Simon. Now, we don't know a ton about Matthew or this Simon. There were two, this Simon. But we know enough about them. So Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors, you might know, uh, were basically like they were agents of the occupying Roman Empire. Right? So the Jews were living under foreign occupation. It was miserable. Um, and the tax collectors, a lot of people considered them to be basically the worst kind of traitor in society uh, because these guys collected taxes for Rome. And the reason that these tax collectors were good at it was because they knew the Jewish community so well because they were a part of it. They were trading on their relationships to get paid by the occupiers. It's the tax collectors. Meanwhile, Simon is introduced to us in the Bible as not just Simon, but Simon the Zealot. Best way to describe a zealot in Jesus' day is a zealot would be a part of a sort of informal insurgency. So think of them as like freedom fighters for the Jews against Rome, against the occupiers. So they were known for like acts of terrorism and sabotage against the Roman state. Okay, So Jesus got to pick 12 disciples, and he managed to pair Matthew the tax collector with Simon the zealot. You want to guess how well these guys got along? I mean, this is like the, the MAGA hat-wearing, gun-toting, fossil fuel executive hanging out every day for three years with the director of the local Planned Parenthood, right? That's, who, that's what this is. And Jesus curated this group this way. You know how easy it would be to have found, like, 
a way to avoid putting these two together? I mean, this did not sneak up on Jesus. He wasn't like, what? You're a tax collector? This isn't going to work. Right, here's Jesus. Right, basically, right, what's Jesus doing? He's trying to save the world. Okay? So if I'm a leader, I've got big plans like Jesus. I do not want to waste my time every day, which you know he did, trying to corral this fanatical zealot and this tax collector who are driving each other crazy. I mean, some of you are picturing this right now, right? How much like emotional, social energy it would have taken Jesus every single day to be around two people like that. I mean, we got people in this church, they can't stand to be at home like Thanksgiving for like three hours talking about politics. It like ruins the rest of their year, right? This was every day, all day for three years. I mean, headache does not begin to explain how painful this would have been. It really gets at one of the great mysteries, I think, of the entire Christian faith. Which is, why in the world is Jesus wasting his time on people who are as like, inconsistent and flaky and annoying as human beings? Because, you know, he didn't need us. There's this great word from the church fathers. This is like theologians in like the 500s, 600s. This is old stuff. This great word to describe the relationship of the Trinity. So Trinity, right? This is how we talk about God. Uh, You've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God existing in three persons. Existing from eternity in a state that the, the church fathers described as perichoresis. Perichoresis. Perichoresis, it's basically a dancing term. Uh, the image is like circling around each other. Uh, picture three dancers who like know their moves exactly and know everyone else's moves exactly and who only ever perfectly complement each other in the dance. Like you move in, he moves out, like perfectly in time so that it really seems like it's one dancer, not three, when you're, when you're watching. Perichoresis, that was the word. And what perichoresis means is that the Son of God existed in perfect community from eternity. Which means he didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. Right? When you're in perichoresis, you're not lonely. You are completely socially fulfilled. Completely. Which means Jesus didn't need to become flesh and blood just so that he could listen to Simon and Matthew grumble about politics morning, noon, and night. So why did he come? Well, I would say that he came to show us the real selfless love of God. Because here's the thing. You know what you can't really do uh, if you're always around people just like you? You can't show real love. Not selfless love, anyway. Right? Because if the people around you are just like you, then if you love them, it's not so much that you're loving them, you're really loving you. Right? You follow me? Like You meet someone just like you. They talk like you. They make the same points as you. And you're like, man, I really like that guy. Right? No, no, no. What you like is you. Right? Like, oh, that guy is real insightful, isn't he? No, no, no. What you like is you. 
This is something that Jesus understood. And I think it's why he put himself with Simon and Matthew together. I think it's why he came to us in the first place. Because he knew that the most beautiful, compelling love is selfless love. It's not love for people who are just like us. It's love for people who even drive us crazy sometimes. That's a love that'll change you. The kind of love that's possible only when you dig in deep, go beneath the surface, and commit the time. Right? It can't just be the accidental community of bumping into each other once a week. Right? It's the intentional community. It's the time that you commit. You say that you'll be there. You eliminate the other options to make sure that you are there for each other. That's what intentional means. And when we do that, it is a way that we look like Jesus. Jesus showed his love for us in this, while we were still sinners. right? Unlovable, annoying, enemies of Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to people like us because he knew that the more selfless the love, the more powerful the witness would be. As it was for him, may it also be for us. Let's pray together.